This is a very familiar passage, a familiar story. Um, I love preaching through stories, and uh, so I'm excited for this morning. Why don't you follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 through 14. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they had come to the, or when they had came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by um, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you so much for this passage. God, I thank you for having Moses uh, record this event for us, that we can look at it and go back to it and build our faith in you, Lord. That you are a trustworthy God. That your character is holy, good, righteous, justice, merciful, um, Lord, I pray that we put our trust in you, even when times are hard, Lord, when we don't know what's going on around us, when circumstances are bad, we trust that you are there, that you love us, and that you are in control. So God, I pray that this uh, passage just speaks to our heart, that uh, we, we grow in our faith in you, that we trust you more, and I just thank you for this, this time and the privilege it is to um, speak your word, Lord. Amen. In uh, Sunday school, for the high schoolers and junior hires, we're going through the book of Acts, and I love, I love narrative, I love stories, and I love preaching and teaching from stories, and so we're having a good time as we're going through the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is really the start and growth of, and, and growth of the church. You see in Acts 1 through 2, the start of the church, and Peter preaches, and there's 3,000 just like that. And this enormous church in Jerusalem and at the end of Acts 2, we see that it is a pure, a loving, and a faithful church. And you follow Acts 3 through 6, and you see that the growth of the church just keeps going. It goes from 3,000 to 5,000 to where they don't number it because it's growing so fast and so large. But Acts 7, there's a turning point. Acts 7, we see the first martyr. Stephen is stoned to death in Acts 7, and 
Um, it's said of Stephen that he has a, a faith like an angel. I, I don't even know exactly what that means, but this was a good leader of the church in this time, and he was stoned to death, which is a horrible way of dying. And chapter 8, we start seeing a heavy persecution of the church. Acts 8, 2, it even says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I know in, a, in America, we don't face great persecution. Um, but I asked the high schoolers and junior hires to put themselves in the, the church's shoes. Um, what would it be like to see your mom or dad or brother or sister dragged off to jail, threats of, of their lives because of what they believed in or them or you themselves? Um, you would have to get to the point where you ask, why, God? Why? I mean, the church is growing. It, it, it's successful. It's moving. It, it's, it's faithful. Why are you letting this heavy persecution and I, I want to propose a question to you guys. Um, can you trust God? It is easy to say yes when things are going good. But it's a little bit more difficult through the hard times. When we're tempted to say, God, it just seems like you don't care. God, you do not understand. God, are you even there? And the side note, um, in Acts, just to, so you guys know what happens, the heavy persecution takes this church which is, is grown that is only in Jerusalem, and the persecution spreads the church. And with that, spreads the gospel to all the surrounding areas. And God uses the persecution to spread the church in that time. And you know what? Um, even the martyr of Stephen, martyrdom of Stephen, at the end of Acts um, 7, it says this in Acts 7, 60. Don't turn there, just listen. As Stephen is dying from being stoned to death, it says this, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. His last breath, his last prayer as he's getting stoned to death is forgive the sins of these people. And what we, we don't realize is sometimes, at least I didn't until I went through this, is the very next verse says this, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Stephen's prayer was answered. Saul became Paul, and Saul has been a blessing to the church. Paul, Paul wrote half the New Testament, and God used Stephen's death to bring about Saul's salvation, his prayer. But can you trust God? This is an important question for at least two reasons. One is trusting God is closely related to faith and obedience. Right? Whenever you sin, you're saying, God, I do not trust you. Okay? God says, um, you have a choice between A and B. God says, choose A, and you say, no, I'm going to choose B, which is a sin, because you don't trust that A is better for you. Let me give you an example. Eve... When she went and was tempted, the, the devil came to her and said, Did God really say, do not eat the fruit? And she said, Yes, she understood, don't eat this fruit. And really what the devil does is ask in a roundabout way, Do you trust him? That not eating the fruit is better for you than eating the fruit. And she says, No. No. 
In essence, she's calling God a liar and saying that he's not trustworthy. And this brings us to the next point. The next uh, reason why this is an important question is because trusting God is directly connected to what one believes about God's character. What one believes about who God is. The Bible says you can trust God because he is trustworthy. He is holy, good, righteous, just, merciful. Let me give you an example how this works. Here's three truths about God. When added together, adds up to we can trust him. One, One truth is God is completely sovereign. He is in complete control of everything. There isn't one rebellious molecule out there. The Bible proclaims this, and here's just a few verses. Uh, Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord established his steps. Proverbs 21.30, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel, counsel can avail against the Lord. Lamentations 3.37 says, Who has spoken and it, ca- and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And Exodus 11-12 through 12 says, the Lord, or, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? Or deaf? Or seen? Or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? These passages and, and countless others claim that God is in complete control. He's completely sovereign. He's all-powerful. The Bible also claims that God is perfect in love. Perfect in love. And really, we only need one verse for this. 1 John 4.10, which says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, John can say in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Really, this, this, I just want to point out two things about this. Um, first of all, that God sent his son, that God came down in human form and died for sins, tells us that sin is a serious matter. I don't know how many times I hear, well, why can't God just forgive? If he could just forgive, he wouldn't send his son tells us sin is a serious matter. But secondly, God has a profound love for us. God has a profound love for us. So God is all-powerful, he's all-loving, and he's also infinite in wisdom. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments and his past beyond our tracing out. Isaiah 55, 9 says, Oh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's wisdom is so far beyond us. And when you add these three things together, God's power, God's love, God's wisdom, the Bible claims that he is these three things, all-powerful, all-loving, infinite wisdom. One commentator put it this way, God, in his love, always wills what is best for us. God, in his wisdom, 
always knows what is best, and God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Yet, sometimes it's still hard to trust God. Um, I'm taking a lot of this in my sermon from this book, uh, Trusting God. If you guys are going through a hard time right now, if there's something in your life where you just, I don't understand why I'm here, this is a great book. Um, I just want to recommend it. Uh, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And and in the back, uh, promoting the book, uh, Bridges writes this. The circumstances we find ourselves in often defy explanation. When unexpected situations arise that appear unjust, irrational, or even dreadful, we feel confused and frustrated. And before long, we begin to doubt God's concern for us or his control over our lives. Difficulties are hard to endure and can even be harder to understand. If God was really in control, why would he allow tragic car accidents or major job losses? How could he permit cancer in a loved one or even a death of a child? Sometimes the circumstances God puts us in are hard. Health problems, job loss, death... Sometimes what God asks us to trust in seems irrational. Some of the things Jesus says makes me scratch my head. You you say you want me to put myself last so I can be first? Um, You you want me to lose my life so I can gain it? Or you want want me to rejoice in trials? Sometimes what God asks us to trust in is beyond our ability to comprehend. Complete sovereignty. I mean, that just blows me away. That he's in control of everything, even the stars that are in far-off galaxies. Um, yet, we're still responsible for the choices we make. Or maybe just God being infinite. It's just beyond me. I, don't, I can't picture it. I can't get my head wrapped around it. Or how he spoke the universe into existence. Or the Trinity. One God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or Jesus being 100% God, 100% man. These things are just beyond me. And the Bible calls these things mysteries. It says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Yet, the Bible says throughout it all that we need to trust God because he's trustworthy in nature. Even the things that are beyond us, even the things that we don't understand, even in times where we're wondering why. In the Old Testament, there is a mystery. A mystery um, about God that the, the Old Testament saints wrestled with. The Old Testament believers wrestled with with throughout all of the Old Testament. And this is, how can a God be 100% just and 100% merciful at the same time? Justice says, you must pay for your sins. Mercy says, your sins are forgiven. How can these two things go together? And if you really want to see um, this, this 
this pull and the struggle, read through the prophets. On one chapter, the prophets are talking about how um, justice is going to be poured out and wrath is going to be poured out on Israel. And the next, next chapter is talking about how God's going to save Israel. The next chapter, justice and, and wrath is going to be poured out on the nations. The next chapter, it's saying how God's going to save the nations. How do these go together? We want both. An unjust God would be unbearable. Right? We want justice. It's part of God's good nature. Um, let me just give you an example. Someone in authority that is supposed to judge and, and give justice would be a bad person if they didn't do that. If a judge said, um, I'm just going to let you off the hook. And let, here's an example. Uh, the Boston bomber. This guy's going to be coming up to uh, trial soon here. And you can imagine what it would feel like or what it would be like or your emotions if the judge got up there and said, you know what? I know he doesn't have this authority, but pretend he does. Um, I'm a merciful judge and you're off the hook. You can go free. We would be upset. It would be a bad judge. So we want justice. We want a God that's just. But we also want a merciful God because if he wasn't merciful, his justice would send all of us to hell. Today I want to look at a man that struggled with this. Are you really both just and merciful? How do these things go together? God, is your character trustworthy? A man that asked, was asked to trust God with everything, and this is Abraham. Abraham. Let me give you some context to this uh, to the story that we're about to jump into. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Um, God comes to Abraham out of nowhere um, and says, Leave your family, leave everything, and I will show you a land. He didn't even tell him where he's going. And this is what I promise. Verse 2, it says this, I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abraham, he says, you will have a son. This is what the promise is implying. And the son will become a great nation. This son will have children, and they will have children, and the children will have children until they are so numerous they're a great nation. And this nation will have a land, and this nation will be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. But... If you're familiar with this story and we follow along with Abraham, there's one major problem. Abraham doesn't have a son. And Sarah, his wife, is barren. And they wait and wait and wait. until Sarah is well beyond the age where she can have a child. And Abraham needs a son. <laughs> he needs a son. So what does he do? He tries to take matters in his own hands. He gets his servant, Hagar, pregnant. And obviously this was wrong. And we learn something about Abraham through this. That his desire for a son overshadowed his trust in God, in God's timing, and in God's plan. He did not trust God to fulfill his word. Of course, the story continues. Later, we see God fulfill his promise and give him a son, Isaac. And that's the end of the story, right? 
So the end of the sermon, you can trust God. You guys are dismissed. Just, just joking. Now today I want to look at this, the um, passage that we just read. And there's three aspects of this passage. Here's the outline. Um, the test of God, the actions of Abraham, and the provision of the Lord. The test of God, the actions of Abraham, and the provision of the Lord. Start with the test of God. In verse 1, uh, Genesis 22, it says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Again, I, I mean, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is if the child finally comes, this is the promise. What? Or more, why? Why, God? Why? Well, as I was studying this passage and I was thinking through it, there's probably more reasons to why than we'll ever understand, but I, I could think of three reasons why. Three reasons why. And first is the clearest one. It was a test. Right? I mean, the author makes this clear in verse 1. It says, God tested Abraham. God was asking Abraham, do you love me more than your son? Do you love me more than the promise? Will you obey me? Do you trust me? Am I trustworthy? I mean, if he obeys, he's saying, God, you are trustworthy. If he disobeys, he says, God, I don't trust you. So this was a test. This was a test. Second reason why I think God asked this of Abraham was for Abraham's own good. For Abraham's own good. Look at verse 2. It says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Abraham's son was becoming his ultimate joy and his ultimate desire. Right? If you see in verse 2, his name is repeated. This is a way in Hebrew to emphasize um, Abraham's love for his son. Abraham was tempted, listen to this carefully, Abraham was tempted to love God's good gifts, Isaac and the future promise, more than God himself. And God knew it. Right? And here's the deal. Any worship over the worship of God will lead to despair. Right? And, and let me back up. Again, that word worship... That word worship comes from the word worth. Anything that we put in more worth over God will eventually lead to despair. God needs to be worth more to us than anything else. Why? We were made to find our ultimate joy only in God's glory. We were made to worship God. That's how Adam and Eve were made. And nothing else will satisfy this is why Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
This word hate in our culture is very strong. Um, the hate in this context means a lesser love. It means anyone that loves any of this over their love for God and Jesus cannot be my disciples. Our ultimate affection needs to be directed towards God. And we can take good things and place them above God, and that becomes a bad thing. And Abraham was in danger of doing this. So God tested Abraham, and it was for Abraham's own good. But also because of God's character, he asked Abraham to do this. Let me give you a cultural insight. The culture in the Bible times, as I'm sure you guys know, is a lot different than our culture, especially when it comes to the family. There's a more communal sense to the family. We are more individualistic. In that day, you were who your family was. You with me? If your family was honorable, you were born into that honor. If your family was shameful, you were born into that shame, and that's who you are. If your family was wealthy, you're wealthy. If your family's poor, you're poor. And the head of the family was the father. And that headship was passed down to the firstborn son. Therefore, the firstborn son was extremely important. The firstborn son was the future and hope of the family continuing. And here's what one commentator said about the Passover, in particular the judgment on Egypt, the death of the firstborn sons. When God brought judgment on Egypt, his ultimate punishment was taking the lives of their firstborn. Their firstborn's life were lost because of the sins of the family and the nation. Why? The firstborn son was the family. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn's life belonged to him unless ransomed, he was saying in the most vivid way possible in those cultures that every family on earth owed a debt to eternal justice, the debt of sin. The firstborn was the family. Therefore, the penalty for the family's sins was the death of the firstborn. And, and Abraham understood this in some former fashion. And he didn't completely grasp this, I don't think. But he knew God's justice at least demanded a payment. The sins of him, his family, of Isaac, of everyone demanded a payment. And Isaac's life was the future hope of the family. Future hope of the promise. Yet, he also understood God is a merciful God. And he believed that God is going to save his family somehow and save Isaac's life. Yet he didn't know how these things went together. How can God be just and merciful at the same time? He had a guess. He had a guess. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, don't turn there, but it gives us some insight of what Abraham was thinking. By faith, it says this, by faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received, or, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. <clears throat> he considered that God was able uh, even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So here's Abraham's guess. God's justice demands a payment. God's mercy is going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's my guess. 
So the God, so we saw the test of, of God. And the second point here is the actions of Abraham. The actions of Abraham. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham, I mean, let me read that again. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham was ready to trust God. I mean, he didn't understand the circumstances. He didn't quite get what was going on, why this was happening, what was going, the end result was going to be. But you know what? He says, I trust you, Lord. He trusted in who God was. He knew he was going to save Isaac somehow because he's a merciful God. And he knew that that God was trustworthy. So verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now this is a two about a two-day journey. It took him two to three days to get there. And, and so then this gives him three days to reflect on what God was asking him to do. On top of this, Isaac was somewhere between, probably around the age of 20 at this point. Um, at least a teenager. This means this is three days of quality time with his son as they're journeying to this mountain. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It it doesn't show in English that well, but the Hebrew word come again there is actually in plural. Meaning it could be translated, I and the boy will go over there um, and worship and we will come again to you. Meaning... God, or Isaac, or Abraham was confident that God was going to save Isaac's life. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knew what they were doing. You see this in here. This is something that they obviously have done before and probably have done multiple times of worshiping and sacrificing to God. This was not unusual. Isaac, again, probably around the age of 20, was not a little boy. He didn't know where the lamb was. Normally they would take a lamb to sacrifice, but they had no lamb. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. God will provide the lamb. This lamb that God would provide would take away the sins of the family. It would be the payment. It would be what would satisfy God's just wrath. I don't know if Abraham was thinking in God providing a lamb, the lamb being Isaac or another lamb. But you see Abraham's trust 
you see that he trusts God will provide. And you see that throughout this whole story. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his knife or his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is This is a almost a hard teaching. Um, I hope you guys through this whole story see the reality of sin and the cost of sin. But I was thinking through this and as I was thinking of the different ages and what was going on, I realized a, a couple things. First of all, Abraham at this point is over the age of 100. He's, he's old in this, age, in, this, in this time. And if you look back at verse 6, what's, what's it say? It says this, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He gave all the wood, which would have be, been a considerable amount to do an offering, on his son Isaac to carry it up the mountain. The reason was is Isaac was much stronger than Abraham. Was much stronger than Abraham. Meaning, right, that Isaac could have backed away, could have fought here. How did Abraham bind up Isaac? I think the only answer that makes sense is that Isaac trusted his dad. And he trusted God following his dad. In the same way, in a similar matter, Jesus went to the cross saying, not my will be done, but yours. Isaac carried the wood, which is a type of Christ who carried the cross to the sacrifice. So we see the test of God, the actions of Abraham, and lastly, the provision of the Lord. The provision of the Lord. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 11, now I know that you fear God. Abraham can truly say, because I have God, I can live without anything. He can say, I have complete trust in the trustworthy nature of my God. God can say, Abraham, now I know you love me because you are willing to sacrifice your one and only son. And you know what? We can say, God, now I know that you love me because you were willing to sacrifice your one and only son. This is why Paul writes in Romans eight thirty-two: He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can you trust God? Yes. 
And the cross proves it. The cross proves it. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What, what was in the thicket? A ram. Look back at verse 8. And Abraham said, predicting what was going to happen, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I kind of sat back when I read that. Why, why a ram? He said that he provided a lamb, and God gave a, a ram. And I think, and I found one other commentator, one other scholar that was thinking in the same, in the same way, um, that the ram isn't the lamb. The ram isn't the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God that God would provide. Jesus truly paid for the sins of Abraham and his family and Isaac and everyone else in the Old Testament. The ram just pointed to the true lamb. This is why John the Baptist called out when he saw Jesus in John 1.29, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, being God the Father, made him... Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah um, 53, 4 through 6 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought, um, that brought us peace. And with him, his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Anyone that says that the Old Testament God, who is the God of the New Testament, is not loving, does not know their Old Testament well. Jesus is the lamb that takes away sins. So verse 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we see this dilemma in the Old Testament. How can God be 100% just you will pay for your sins, and 100% merciful. You will not pay for your sins at the same time. How is this possible? This is a mystery in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament believers struggled with this, and they were called just to trust in God, that he's both just and merciful. Yet the answer is Jesus. God's justice was poured out on Jesus so that God's mercy can be poured out on us. And I just want to add to this. That's for those who have their faith in Jesus. If you don't have your faith in Christ, then you're just facing God's justice, which still makes God a good God. Without, your, without trust in Christ, 
is death. That's the reality that you're facing. So put your trust in him. Put your faith in him so that mercy can get poured out on you. The ram didn't take away Abraham's and his family's sins. None of the Old Testament um, sacrifices took away anyone's sins. They all pointed forward to Christ, the only Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lord will provide. You know why you can trust God? You know why you can trust that the Lord will provide? Because of who He is. Because of His nature. Because He is a good God. He is both just and merciful. This was a mystery in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New how He can be both. It really makes me wonder if one day we, we will understand maybe the Trinity better or um, God being 100% or Jesus being 100% God, divine and 100% human. Some of these mysteries, will God reveal them? He revealed this one. It didn't make any sense in the Old Testament. It does in the New. So I come back to the, the original question I asked. Can you trust God? Can you trust God through losing a job? Can you trust God, trust God through financial difficulties? Through infertility? Can you trust God through raising a wayward child? Can you trust God through health problems? Can you trust, trust God through losing a family member, a spouse, or even a child? The answer is yes. Yes, you can. Because he, in his nature, is trustworthy. The Bible claims that God is all-powerful, all-loving, infinite in wisdom, just and merciful. Therefore, God, in his love, always wills what is best for us. God, in his wisdom, always knows what is best for us. And God, in his sovereignty, has the power to bring it about. I want to end with this. Pastor Brent asked me to, to preach today, and um, I, I, again, I said I didn't want to jump in and break up his sermon, so I was going to preach on something else, and he asked me to preach on something he, he thought our church needed. And it just seems like, um, well, first of all, the end-time in, in stuff is kind of scary, <laughs> reading through it, and it's confusing, and it's mystery, or there's mystery to it. I mean, we just don't quite understand it. Um, and I wanted to preach on something that said, trust God. Trust God with it. But, but more than that, it just seems like there's a lot going on in individuals' lives that I've seen recently, or just a lot of hard times. Um, and I wanted to preach on something that shows God's trustworthy nature. Can you trust God? Yes. He's good. Even through the hard times. So let me pray and we'll end. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I thank you for who you are. That you are a trustworthy, good, holy, righteous, merciful God. God, I thank you that you're just. That we know that all the evils that we see, that we experience 
aren't small things to you, that evil is real, and that you are just to take care of it, that we know that everything will be put right back into place because you are a a just God and we can trust in that justice. And at the same time, we know that you're a merciful God, that even though we deserve hell, we deserve eternal wrath, you have shown us mercy by taking on that eternal wrath yourself and Jesus on the cross. God, help us trust in that. Put our faith in that, Lord, that through hard times we know that you love us because of what you have done for us. We know that you love us because of who you are. I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you for recording it that we can go to it and build our faith, Lord. I thank you for Abraham and the the faith that you gave him. God, I pray that you build our faith as a church as we continue forward, that we trust you with every ounce of our being. I thank you, Lord, for this time and just pray that you're with us as we go our separate ways. Amen.